John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, Thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Hello and welcome back to The Cinephiles, where we are honoring the great Cloris Leachman, who we lost just a week ago. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hey guys, I'm uh, this is John Roca, I'm a writer, producer, voiceover artist here um, uh, in California as well. And yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's sad, but also, Steve, like, you know, once you get past 80, 90, I feel like you've done a good job. You've left a legacy. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, certainly uh, Cloris Leachman did on in numerous uh, genres and in numerous media. She has left a legacy for so many people to remember and admire and respect as the years go on. Well, that's why I wanted to, I was so excited to talk about her because is she a huge movie star? No. Is she like the most one of the most famous people in 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 the film world? No. Mm-hmm. She acted for seven decades. Yep. In every single form you can imagine, and she is like the epitome of the working actor. That she yep. is just going to do the job. She's done all sorts of genres. She's always good, and I just you know. We talk so much about the big famous people that I'm really excited to talk about this incredible actor who just kept working and working and working and working. You know, it's funny too, Steve, because like she was a TV actress. She mm-hmm. was a TV actress until the 70s and it was the 70s. And she started working in like 1947 people. So for 23 years, she in essence toiled, worked, uh, honed her craft on the TV side of things for the most part, and shows like Lassie and Gunsmoke and what have you, and it wasn't until the 70s that she started appearing more prominently in feature films and obviously uh, caught the eye of uh, Mel Brooks, who cast her in some of the most iconic roles she's ever done, Young Frankenstein and other things like that. She even, you know, she was part of the Mary Tyler Moore show for a very long time in the 70s as well, part of Phyllis. Uh, She was in the Muppet movie, and then all the way, as you said, Steve, into the 80s, into the 90s, into the 2000s. In fact, she was acting all the way up to the end. She has two or three projects that are still coming out this year. So just phenomenal, uh, as you said, multiple decades of acting, seven decades. That is rare, but that also speaks to the... And not like one one episode 
every six years. Every year almost she was consistently working on numerous projects and it just speaks volumes to A, her professionalism and B, the desire for people to have her in their projects. She is she never seems like she never lacked for work. She has 287 acting credits. Yeah. 22 Emmy nominations tied for the most in history with Julia Louis-Dreyfus. She won the Emmy, Emmy eight times. She has an Academy Award for Last Picture Show. She won Golden Globe. She won a uh, BAFTA Award. Here, And I went and looked at some of her uh, biography. Man, she's interesting. So yeah. she's born in 1926 in Des Moines, Iowa. She went to Northwestern and her classmates, two of her classmates are Paul Lind and Charlotte Ray, which I just thought is <laughs> it's always interesting. In 1946, she competed in the Miss America pageant. Ha! Well, there you go. Wow. And from that, she didn't win, but she did get a scholarship, which she used to go to the actor's studio where she studied under Elia Kazan with Marlon Brando. Wow. That's great. Isn't that cra- And she was lifelong friends with Brando. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she played uh, Nellie Forbush in the original run of South Pacific after mm-hmm. uh, I think it's uh, Mary Martin left. Mm-hmm. She was the second person. So this is like late 40s. Yeah. Um, she starts acting in TV in the late 40s. That is the very, very beginning of television. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we have this person who is in the pioneering days of the earliest TV who literally was in a movie that I watched two weeks ago. Like, oh, yeah. That's uh, because she's in, she does one of the voices in the Croods. Yes. So there's the Croods sequel and she's in that. I yep. mean, that's just amazing. She, um, she, Catherine Hepburn sees her in South Pacific and asks her to do As You Like It, uh, the play with her. And so she acted with Catherine Hepburn. Yeah. You yeah. know, I mean, I, and it go it goes on and on. She was supposed to be playing Abigail Williams in the premiere of The Crucible by Arthur Miller. Oh, wow. And she okay. was in it. And four days before it was to premiere outside of Broadway. So it was the, you know, they, they, they tested out in different towns. Yeah. She left the show. Huh. And I don't know why. Wow. I don't know if it was a conflict with someone or yeah. another. She got sick. I don't know. But she, I mean, this is one of the most important places. So she's working with Arthur Miller at that time. Yeah. That's I mean, hubris. That's hubris. That's strength. That's power. That's belief. Like nope, I'm not gonna do it. I don't have an, I don't like what's going on here. Or maybe there's another offer that's better for her career. She's like, I'm out. You know, or, and she might have gotten fired. I I on I literally that's have possible no idea too. why she that's left the show. Um, and as you say, tons of TV, Rawhide and mm-hmm. Alfred Hitchcock prevent presents and last all that stuff she's in one of the greatest episodes of the twilight zone in history which is a good life which is the one with the creepy superpowered kid she's the mom yep like i mean that's it's just amazing oh and in the early 60s she lived next door to judy garland and sid luft (laughs) oh i bet she had stories i I bet she had a lot of stories yeah yeah a cameo in uh butch casting and the sundance kid which Mm. obviously that's a movie at some point we're going to do on the cinephiles sure um and then it's the big one is Last Picture Show in 1971, where she plays yeah. a, a teacher that has an affair with a student, um, Timothy Bottoms. I think I've only seen that movie once. Uh, I've never seen that movie. So it's really good. Yeah, that's what everyone says. You know, uh, young yeah. Peter Bogdanovich, Sybil Shepherd, Jeff Bridges, uh, Timothy Bottoms, as you said, right? Is that correct? Yeah. Timothy Bottoms? Yeah, yeah. So. 
Um, people love that movie. People talk about it all the time. Those were the first two things in the bio for her when she passed. It was Last Picture Show and Young Frankenstein, which is so ironic because for so many years, her foundation was TV. But it is the most popular projects that people know her from, for sure. So, yeah. Well- we think of her as this amazingly funny person. Yeah. Her yeah. role in Last Picture Show is anything but. Right. It is a heavy role, and she she wins the Oscar for it. Um, and that's, you know, where Peter Bogdanovich really, you know, comes from is that film. Yeah. Uh, like I said, I think I've only seen it once, and it was probably 20 years ago. So mm. maybe, you know, you haven't seen it at all. That's another one that I'd certainly yeah. cinephile worthy. Probably. We just throw it on the pile. All the um, we, we have to get to, yeah. You mentioned Mel Brooks. Let's let's just take a moment. <laughs> because, of course, what we're doing today is we're re-releasing our episode on Young Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah. She is so damn funny. Oh, yeah. With just the looks and the reactions. Uh, and, I mean, the pained look when, when Gene Wilder <laughs> rejects her is just so perfect. Uh, you know, because she has been... She's endured those barbs probably from... Gene Wilder. It was what is it? His grandfather or his father? Who is Frankenstein? Is it his father? His grandfather. Yeah, his grandfather. So he's in. She's probably endured those kinds of explosions, emotional explosions from his grandfather in the past. So in that moment, she's like reverting back to how she's dealt with them in the past. There's so much that she's playing with in those moments, and of course the 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 horses neighing when they hear the name. uh, what that implies and everything like that. So yeah, she's so great in the movie. So important in the movie as well. I mean, you have such, so many funny damn people in that film and you could watch any of them. And since we're honoring Cloris Leachman, I will say, just watch her. Gene Wilder's amazing. You know, Terry, all of them are amazing. But if you watch her just reacting to everything that's going on in the room, she is so damn funny. Yeah, agreed. And I cannot tell, you know, she did High Anxiety with Mel in 1977, and she's like the bad guy. Um, yeah. I cannot tell you how many times Karen and I have said to each other, if you are tardy, you do not get fruit cup. <laughs> like, I don't know why I find that so funny, but I do. And then she's, of course, in History of the World Part One. Yeah. Here's something I didn't know. Okay. This is just totally bizarre. In 2007, she auditioned. They made her audition to play the role she created in the Broadway production of Young Frankenstein. <laughs> and she didn't get the part. Ah, well, maybe the chemistry wasn't right with the people they cast in the other parts. Well, maybe it wasn't the right situation. But then she did uh, Dancing with the Stars, mm. and Mel Brooks watched her on Dancing with the Stars, and he changed his mind and he put <laughs> her in the play. That's so funny. Like, what the hell, Mel? You know, you already had him in her in the movie. Why wouldn't you put her in the play? It's so uh, funny. Yeah. And again, you mentioned, and this is, you know, the role she's most known for is playing Phyllis in the Mary Tyler Moore show and yeah. Phyllis show tons and tons of Emmy nominations and awards. Um, and, and Steve, didn't she take over for Charlotte Ray in Facts of Life or was she the sister? That's right. Because I think she took over for Charlotte Ray, which is so ironic when you talk about the fact that they had worked or came up in the business together. Uh, so for her to take her spot was so interesting on Facts of Life. I think the last two seasons she was on it. Yeah, I mean, and it's just she's in HBO miniseries. She's in Spanglish. Mm-hmm. She's in Two and a Half Men. Yeah. She's in um, and she does all this voice work. Like I said, in the Croods, yep. she's in My Little Pony, the movie. Yeah. She's also in The Iron Giant. Which yeah. Is I mean, a, a, a epic film. People love to pieces. So so this is I, 
you know, yes, I'm sure maybe she did aspire to be the big movie star. Sure. But really, you have been around this industry long enough. I've been around enough. Mm -hmm. This is a career. This is I an incredible mean, career. Yeah. yeah. And listen, as a woman in this business, to work consistently for seven decades is a very, very difficult thing to do. And you bring up the Mel Brooks story. Even a man who cast her in that part in 1974 or some whatever it was, uh, she had to go re-audition to be considered for the same part years later. The kind of power that men sometimes have in this business, you know, where the, they make the female actress who already killed it have to re-audition again years later. It's crazy. But she is clearly very talented, very in demand, and a excellent hard worker and gets her point across. And so uh, you got to give a lot of respect to her. And, you know, people are going to talk about other actors. But, Steve, these are the ones that people don't revere enough. People don't decorate enough. People don't give accolades to enough. Uh, because, as you said, it's a very difficult business. And to be able to be consistently working every year on numerous projects throughout 70 years is just, you got to take your hats off to that. And in all different genres. Yes, I mean, everything, your yeah. comedies and dramas and sitcoms and, and, you know, like his playing Phyllis yeah. is in a comedy is totally different from Frau Bruja yeah, and exactly. Young Frankenstein, you know, right. and then, you know, doing animation and voiceover, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's an amazing career. And you must have a certain innate charm, Steve, that people want to cast you in things. People want to keep bringing you back. So certainly she must radiate this kind of exuberance and also must be a absolute pleasure to work with if people want to consistently bring you back for their projects or think of you to cast you in those projects as well. Word of mouth travels fast in this business. Uh, and uh, if you're not easy to work with, and I don't mean in the other way, I mean if you're not easy to work with because you're mean to people on set or you're not respectful to people or you're not courteous to people on set, that's different than having a strong opinion. I really want to make that clear. That's sure. different than having a strong opinion. You can have a strong opinion and still be an absolute jerk to people, and that's the reason you don't work enough. It's not because you have a strong opinion. She seemed to be the kind of person who was very charming, very fun to work with, and uh, professional as hell, and people enjoyed working with her, certainly. You never heard a bad rumor about her ever. Well, frankly, only the huge movie stars get away with being jerks. You know what I mean? Like, sure. You know, it's like if you're, if you're going to be come in and have the small part, you can't come in and be a jerk. <laughs> like, it's not, <laughs> not going to work. I mean, well, what happened? We just sometimes? did Godfather. Castellano got kicked off Godfather 2. For some of the things. Well, that's exactly the point. Yeah, you know, yeah, exactly. he doesn't get to do Godfather 2. Right. Um, so we are going back. John, this was yes. our ninth episode. It was recorded oh, wow. on April 22nd. 2016 almost five <laughs> years ago wow that we were just starting out we were just figuring out the show is was really really different yeah. but the movie is really really funny and so in honor of the great cloris leachman the cinephiles brings you mel brooks's young frankenstein <laughs> Hi, and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a classic film and explore its history, themes, filmmaking, and the influence it has on filmmakers today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hi, I'm John Roca. I host a number of shows here about films and what have you. I'm also a voiceover actor uh, and, and what, what and else? an actor and an actor. Yes, of course. Yes. I usually don't like to make the difference because some people take that uh, personally. But yeah, yes, I'm an actor as well. 
You you are you are an all around actor. In fact, you've acted for me. I have acted for you. Yes, yeah, which was a lot of fun. Directed you in a Sundance uh, selected uh, yes. interactive short back in two thousand three. That was a long yes. time ago. Now. There was a lot of makeup for that one. Yeah, I remember that. That's right. You got to be tortured. <laughs> I did. It's good times. Uh, anyway, so our film this week is Young Frankenstein, yeah. the classic nineteen seventy four Mel Brooks Gene Wilder homage to the. Uh, famous James Whale Frankenstein. Yeah. Such a great choice. You were saying you wanted to do a comedy and because sometimes you can get really caught up in the idea that it's like, you know, it's the cinephiles. But this is such a perfect choice for us for so many reasons because it's an homage to those classic, uh, you know, 1930s, 1940s horror films Absolutely. with Frankenstein and Wolfman and Dracula. And so it was great to kind of explore this again. And I can't believe it's, a 30, almost a 32 year old film or 42 year old, 42. Film, sorry, 42 year old film. Yeah. So, so, and I, and I think I, I'm glad we're doing it too, because I want to get right away to say, we're not disrespecting any genre, you know, oh, the, no. the, there's a tendency to elevate serious drama yeah. on top and then put action movies somewhere else and put science fiction somewhere else and put comedies way down at the bottom. And that is not how I feel at all. You know, the famous quote, and it's from a, British actor who's in the names out of my head right mm-hmm. now, but dying is easy. Comedy is hard <laughs> that he said on his deathbed. Yeah. Apparently his last words <laughs> may or may be apocryphal, but it's still a great quote. And, and comedy is one of the toughest, toughest things to do in mm-hmm. filmmaking. And, and really, and this is what's made, I'll tell you, it's made me a little nervous about this podcast oh. because I think it's harder to talk about. Oh, interesting. I, th- I think, okay. you know, we can talk about great camera movements in, mm-hmm. in, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. We can talk about the way the story is set up in High Noon, the ones we've done previously. But why is something funny? That's tough to say. It's a subjective thing. Comedy is very, very subjective. But I think when a film has been like listed as the number 11 film comedy ever made, uh, you kind of have to give it its due, I think, a little bit. Oh, there's no question. This is a really funny movie. In fact, in comedy, I know. So so, uh, when I was in film school, I did sitcoms. I did a couple. I did three sitcoms. Okay. And my writing instructor on the sitcoms is a guy named Sam Denoff. Okay. And Sam Denoff was... um, a uh, writer with his partner Bill Persky on the Dick Van Dyke show. Oh wow. He created That Girl and he wrote The Marlo Thomas show. The Marlo Thomas show. And he wrote uh for Jerry Lewis and he wrote wow. he's like an old school one of those guys. Yeah. And uh and I remember one of the things he to- he t- said two things that uh I thought a lot about obviously in just writing in general, yeah. but then in particular in this film which is uh one he talks about joke density that a good comedy, it should have five funny moments a page. Wow. That's, that's a when you're, page? A page. Wow. When, that's when you're off the charts doing great. That yeah. if, if, if the basic assumption in screenplays is that a page is about a minute. Right. So there are five chuckles per minute in a good comedy. Hmm. And if you look at Young Frankenstein, it's definitely true. Yeah. There's almost, it's every 10 or 15 seconds, you're getting another little moment yeah. that's funny. And the other thing he talked about, which definitely applies here, is... Comedy has a certain style and you can have a joke that comes in. You go, wow, that is really funny, but it is not for this show. Yeah. We cannot do that funny. And, and I think young Frankenstein is one that walks a really fine line in terms of what is the style of comedy in this movie? Yeah, it's interesting because there, there's breaking the fourth wall, which they do on numerous occasions. A lot, yeah. Yeah, which uh, I don't know how 
in vogue that was at the time you know um i thought i wonder if it was something that was new something that was being played with you know because you see that modern family now you see that in the office obviously you see that as a very current thing but you wonder how many there have been obviously other films like ferris bueller's ferris bueller's day off did that but like how many other films really were doing that in the 70s i don't know well another one is blazing saddles oh yes previous film that's right he definitely liked this yeah um so let's talk a little bit about mel brooks because he is arguably one of the great comic directors of all time. I, yeah, I wanted to add something when you were talking about doing yeah. comedy, how it's hard. It's especially hard to do comedy and be consistently good at it. That is really rare. Every I, once in a while you get a one-off, but like Mel has been good for so long. Well... Was good for so was long. Good yes, for so I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Well, I, what I should say, <laughs> Mel's had a resurgence in musical. Yes, he has. Because, because, and this is, I think it's really hard. I, I have a, a theory, which maybe we'll go into in greater detail Why in other, other, other podcasts, but <laughs> that basically most comedians get about four movies. Oh, they get interesting. one movie where they appear, uh-huh. and you go, wow, who is this guy? So Eddie Murphy, that's 48 hours. Sure. And then you get another movie, which I would call their ascendant movie, where they're coming up, mm-hmm. and you and and that's Trading Places. Okay. And then you get a movie where they hit their peak. Yeah. Which is Beverly Hills Cop. If you say so. Oh, that would be my peak. Coming to America. Would well, be and then you get their swan song. Oh, yeah. I see. And then and that's oh, mostly it. I see. And 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 if you look at comedians, hmm. it's now my theory is not correct. We could you could go disprove sure. it places, sure. but they don't get more many more than four. It's yeah. rare that a, it's rare that a funny person gets five. It's a very good point, Steve. People stay funny for... Being funny is a very short-lived thing. You kind of match up to the zeitgeist of the moment, and you hit your stride, and and you're hungry, and then... You know, then you become You get soft. Yeah, because you look... And then people make a lot more movies frequently. Yeah. And they're not funny. Right. Yeah, it's it's true. I think you're right. You start to... Because what makes you funny for most comedians now that we see is the hunger to to be successful, to tell their jokes, the hunger from the pain, the hunger from the struggle, the hunger from all that. Once you achieve a certain level of fame and notoriety and money, it's really hard to get back in touch with that that drove you from the beginning. You know, it's like one of those great lines in the Rocky series was like, the greatest thing happening that could happen, or the most dangerous thing happening that could happen to any fighter, you got soft because you got uh, complacent. And when you get complacent, you can't find that hunger anymore. It's really hard to find that hunger anymore. Well, and I think this is something we can say about artists in general. Absolutely. That that there, there are some artists that continue to be fantastic well into their mm-hmm. middle and older films. Kurosawa being one, yes, which absolutely, continues to be unbelievable yeah. right up until almost the very end. Yeah, but there's some that just hit the ball out of the park in mm-hmm. their first few movies, and then that's it. Yeah, you know. So whatever was driving them at that point maybe goes away. So let's yeah. let's let's go back to Mel Brooks. Yes, talk a little bit about what's driving him. So uh, he's born in Brooklyn. He goes into the army. He's in World War II. Mm-hmm. He comes back, and he's going to be a musician. Right? Yeah, he's a drummer, and apparently a really good drummer. Wow. His mentor is Buddy Rich. Wow. Yeah, that's who taught Mel Brooks how to play drums. <sighs> Buddy Rich is one of the two great drummers of that era. Not an easy guy to learn under, I imagine. No, I, I, I would think so. And so, from what I've heard, and I'm not a judge of drummers, right. Mel Brooks is not just good. He is really a good drummer. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And so he worked in the Catskills. And for those people who don't know, the Catskills are these mountains outside of New York where vacationers from New York City would go and there were resorts anywhere from very inexpensive to super expensive. Mm-hmm. And all of the big acts in show business would come through. And he's a drummer in the Catskills. That's where he starts to get interested in comedy. Wow. And suddenly, and so, and he becomes a writer on, in the, the 
arguably greatest comedy writer staff of all time, which is on Sid Caesar's show of shows. This yeah. is a, a live TV show broadcast twice a night in the late 50s, early mm-hmm. 60s. And uh, here's the writing staff. It's uh, Carl Reiner, who's mm-hmm. the head writer, who goes on to make The Jerk and Oh God and all yeah. sorts of great movies, including one of my secret favorites, Summer School. Yes, Love um, summer school. I do too. And maybe, maybe that's sad, but <laughs> no, I really we all do. have our guilty pleasures, really man. Um, and then uh, Larry Gobart, yes. uh, writer of Tootsie, writer of Oh God, and the person who d- developed MASH for television yeah. and ran the first four seasons of MASH. You have Sam Simon and his younger brother, Neil Simon, wow. one of the greatest uh, playwrights, the, the most successful playwright in the history of Broadway, yeah. who wrote The Odd Couple and Chapter Two and yeah, Brighton Beach Memoirs. Brighton yeah. Beach Memoirs and Lost in Yonkers and on and on and on. Yes. And for a f- few shows at the very end, and for specials after the show ended, young Woody Allen was wow. on the writer staff. Right. So that's an unbelievable. And, and Mel Brooks. And uh, I just want to tell one story because I like it a lot. Wasn't there a woman too? Because I, I... so Imogene Coco yes. is, is Sid Caesar's wife, right? Who's the co-star in the show. Yes, and she is super funny. And anyone who wants to get real geeky and go back, you can watch some of these shows. Some of them are still to this day super super funny oh yeah and i mentioned this only because i did uh, we mentioned me being an actor the being this i did laugh on the 23rd floor mm. back in tallahassee when i was at going school of florida state we did that at one of the little theaters there what a phenomenal experience to do that play neil simon wrote the play obviously but it is about his time on your show of shows and it is such a great uh window into what that world was like and so you can watch the programs now after you've read that play with a whole different perspective and i think it's it's amazing that what they were able to do it's a fantastic play and if you're interested in that the other one i I direct you to is go watch my favorite year yes oh which is peter o'toole marklin baker marklin baker and uh jill bologna is that who yes joseph bologna plays plays the sid caesar character and it is also it's the same era it's that it's definitely modeled after that show and there's a there's a uh a PBS doc, uh, like a panel discussion with the writers. Mm-hmm. I think it happened in the eighties, and it's always stuck with me. Mm-hmm. And they're talking to Carl Reiner, and they're on the panels: Larry Gelbard, Neil Simon, Sam right. Simon, all these people. Woody Allen's not there, and, <laughs> they, and Imogene Coco and uh, Sid Caesar. And they say to Carl Reiner, "How did you write so much great stuff?" Carl Reiner says, "Well, we were lucky to have the funniest man in the world and the wittiest man in the world and the same writing staff." Funniest man in the world is Mel Brooks. Wittiest man in the world is Larry Gelbart. Wow! And they and he's and the interviewer which is the right follow-up question what's the difference between funny and witty and as he's finishing the comment mel brooks is taking a sip of water and immediately does the biggest most ridiculous spit take (laughs) you've ever seen practically falls on on the floor drooling and as the laughter is just dying down larry gelbart very calmly says wit is dry How perfect. Yeah. It's, How perfect. It's one of the great moments of all time that I've yeah. ever seen. And it sets up who this guy Mel Brooks is, which yeah. is he will do anything for a laugh. Mm-hmm. At the time, he's not a performer. No. And and what starts him being a performer is uh, doing the 2,000-year-old man with Carl Reiner, right. which they started doing at parties, which is Carl Reiner would interview Mel Brooks as the 2,000-year-old man. Yeah. And everyone thought this was so funny. They cut an album. It comes this huge album. And suddenly, Mel Brooks becomes a star. But sir, do you remember the very first book you ever read? The first book. Ah, you don't forget the first book. No. Nah, nah. You remember what it was? Uh, I was a child. Yes. It was a simple book in the ancient Hebrew. It was a book called Zechem, Mochem, Ruchem. And that translates into See Moses Run. <laughs> oh. A little book. A beautiful, a beautiful little book. Yes. 
Do you, do, you, do you remember? Do you remember the story? Do you remember the story? Well, it wasn't a big, you know, complicated story. Well, but it was, it was a page turner. Yes. Oh, yeah. Now, yeah, it's one of those bits that people know. If you know comedy, it's one of those bits you remember that are classic. Like, who's on first? The 2,000-year-old yeah. man. These are all in a certain uh, echelon, right? They're revered in a certain way by most comedians because they're so tight, they're so brilliant, and they're timeless. And that's oh, really yeah. the most important thing. So anyone who wants to go listen to them today, they're well worth your time. Yes. Um, so we get to... Uh, so I don't feel like I'm doing a long monologue on this story. In my We're getting to Young Frankenstein at yeah. some point. Yes. <laughs> at some point, we have to get to the movie. Uh, so... Uh, uh, he meets Gene Wilder through his wife, uh, yes. through Anne Bancroft, because yes. they're doing a play together. And uh, Gene Wilder comes on to do The Producers, which is a fantastic movie. Yes. Then comes on to play, naturally, you cast Gene Wilder as the fastest gun in the rest in Blazing uh, Oh, yeah. Blazing in Blazing Saddles, Saddles yes. Uh, and, and then, in, during Blazing Saddles, Gene Wilder says, I have an idea for a movie, mm-hmm. and it should be our next movie. Uh, and that movie's Young Frankenstein. Right. Um, he said, and that's what, he, well, from what I read, he, he, Gene said, I'm only going to do Blazing Saddles if you do the movie, if you do Young Frankenstein, if you do my idea for a movie. Wow. And this is, this is what's interesting about their relationship. Gene and Mel seem to come to each other at this, with the same kind of confidence and ego, because you can read a lot about the clashes that they had yeah. through their times together and their times working stuff out. And I love this because... People think that this only belongs to like the directors and dramatic directors and actors. Like I'm sure Scorsese and De Niro have had their blow-ups. Oh it's, yeah, yeah. It's very legendary. Kurosawa. Like we do a lot of coke. Yeah, <laughs> just that allegedly. I mean, we're not getting in trouble here. I don't want to get a suit. But like he, he's, he said that he <laughs> okay, did a lot of coke. Sure. All right. Fine. Then Kurosawa and Mafuni. Uh, right. Oh. There was a whole book alone about the about the them. Emperor and the Wolf. The Emperor and yeah. the Wolf, which is a 970 page opus. Which you, you, my God, it's still so difficult to get through. But like you, I see think this I still have it. I think I'm like 100 page 100 pages in from like eight years ago. Or I, I I wrote 25 pages on a yellow notepad at page 400, like all the notes to keep everything in track. Cause there's so much, it's so dense, but this is, and so it, it's always interesting to me because Gene is such a, when you see him on screen, he's such a giving funny comedian and uh, willing to make a, a fool of himself. But he has these battles with Mel because Mel wants it a certain way. And a lot of times Gene is right. And Mel will say Gene is right. It's interesting to explore that. So well, the, mo- the most famous story, and we're going to get into this more because yeah. it is the most remarkable scene in the movie, I think, yeah. is putting on the Ritz. Yes. Um, so uh, before we do that, yes. uh, for those of you who have not seen the movie, again, we suggest that you stop listening to our podcast. Yes. You go immediately to iTunes, Netflix, your local video store, local video store. Sure. Go to your local video store. It's 252 miles away. <laughs> it's it's um, called Best Buy. Yeah. yeah. Or Target. So get, uh, uh, pick up the movie and check out Young Frankenstein. It's yeah. still very funny. Uh, uh, but a quick synopsis is pretty simple. This is Frankenstein. Yes. Uh, the difference is, is that it is Frankenstein's grandson, Frederick, who is now... Yes. Changed his name from Frankenstein to Frankenstein. Frankenstein. To yeah. separate himself from his crazy ancestor. Yeah. He finds out that in Frankenstein's will or something that he should come back to the castle. Comes back, discovers Frankenstein's original plans and goes, it could work. Yes. In one of the great manic Gene Wilder moments that you could possibly imagine. It could work! Builds a new monster and hilarity ensues. Yeah, yeah. And great cast. Unbelievable. I mean, there was like there are three Oscar winners 
and six Oscar named Oscar nominated actors in the cast for a comedy in 1974. And this is really funny the timing of this comedy. 1974. Not all nominated for this movie. Right. No, 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 no. Not all. Yeah, right. Exactly. But 19 Yeah, Cloris Leachman and Terry Garr were nominated, I think, for Golden Globes, but I don't think right. they were nominated for Oscars. What's interesting is that the timing of this film is what struck me. 1974. I'd forgotten, because the first time I saw this was in the early 80s, so I thought it was an 80s film. And in my mind, I guess, and I'd always thought it was 82 or something like that. And But it's so interesting. 1974, in the middle of these like very deep, important films like The Godfather, Apocalypse Now is only a few years away. You have the conversation. You have all these very deep... Yeah, Chinatown comes China- Exactly. All these very deep films. And out of nowhere comes this homage to a time in the 40s. And I find, and it's still timeless. The movie is still works, is still good. And so it's so interesting that he's able to separate himself from whatever's going on here and all the, the, the pop culture uh, anger and frustration in Vietnam and all that stuff and, and give you this comedy that is lighthearted, Heavy on the sexual reference jokes, but not in a way that's like uh, offensive. And, and so it's just brilliant the way he did this film and the timing of it. I mean, well, because Mel Brooks is his own thing. Yeah. You know, Mel Brooks is doing movies. He's not part of the counterculture. Right. In fact, if you look at his movies, they're all part of the culture. culture. Yes. Yes. You know, that that you have the producers, which is about Broadway. Yeah. And he does a Western uh, and right, then he does a horror movie, right. and then he does his Hitchcock movie, High Anxiety. High Anxiety. <laughs> and he does History of the World, which is his homage to Cecil B. DeMille yes. and all those guys. Yeah, and then he does Spaceballs. Right, you know. So it's like he is reflecting the genres of the culture. Right, you know, he's not. He's not smoking weed with uh, yeah. Peter Fonda on the back of a motorcycle. Right. That's not Mel Brooks. I mean, I kind of like to see it. Actually. Yeah, I would too. Um, uh, do you have to be on the motorcycle? Do you need to be on the motorcycle? <laughs> like, and then he goes into some kind of musical number. That's right. <laughs> um, yeah, the cast is unbelievable. So first of all, you got Gene Wilder. Yes. And I think in that era, he is one of the off-the-charts, most unbelievable comic actors mm-hmm. in the world. Mm-hmm. And his comedy, it's like, it's kind of... At times he goes to Daffy Duck levels of ridiculous anger. Yeah. He's unbelievably intense. Yes. And dramatic. Um, and you think of his movies. So the producers, he plays this neurotic. Uh, in Blazing Saddles, he plays this um, cool cowboy. Yeah. And then one of my favorite performances, Willy Wonka, yes. which is just intense and weird and disturbing and yeah. scary and funny and brilliant. And then this manic crazed performance in uh young frankenstein right and and we should take a minute just to acknowledge his hair yes the uh, the, the that the hair gets more and more uh manic as the film goes on as he becomes more involved and crazy but still the presentation of it is so <laughs> profound gene wilder hair is like <laughs> i think it's unique in film history i don't think there's anything like gene wilder hair and and you kind of wonder like what is this moment in history where yeah. we go that makes sense yeah. let's have hair like that because it is why it's wild yeah. crazy 
you know, blonde Jufro. Yeah. Hair. It's, it's really strange. Yeah. Well, you have that and you have Terry Gar, you have Cloris Leachman, uh, you have obviously, and you have Mel off screen doing little things, cat uh, noises. Cat no- yeah. Right. Noises. Exactly. So you have all these amazingly gifted actors. I can't, is it Frederick March? Is that, or I'm sorry, not Frederick March. Who's the, na- the name of the, uh, the German, uh, detective Kenneth Mars, Kenneth Mars, who yeah. obviously had been the crazy guy and the producers yeah. who had written the play. And so you have all these great comedic actors and it's funny you mentioned that he was a drummer because comedy is all timing it's all timing and so when you see the best ones you know the tightest scripts the funniest scripts are all about timing and it's i think it helps to be a musician absolutely to be a comedian because it just it gives you it lets you know rhythm it lets you know beat lets you know build pay off then going back down those kinds of things and What's so fun about uh, discovering Young Frankenstein again for me was seeing how tight this comedy was, how tight the jokes were. Even when the jokes don't 100% work nowadays, you still understand the genesis of why that joke is there at that time because of the jokes that led up to it. You know? well, and you have, as you said, this ensemble yeah. where they're all really funny. Yes. So, so, when so, so it's not like you're turning to, okay, now Will Ferrell, give us another joke. Right. Um, I don't know why I single, single him out. Sure. But, but, but it's, it's Terry Gar does something funny. Gene Wilder does something funny. Marty Feldman does something. Mm-hmm. Marty Feldman, who is just can't not be funny. My Lord. Um, I mean, the scene in particular, and, I, and they talk about it in the uh, commentary track, of, yeah. of uh, Madeline Kahn's arrival yeah. at, at where she's wearing her fox uh, stole or whatever, <laughs> and that apparently it's like 25 takes because yeah. everybody was laughing so much. Yeah. And you watch that scene and the amount of funny stuff going on from all of them in the yeah. scene is amazing. Uh, Igor, would you give me a hand with the bags? Certainly. You take the blonde and I'll take the one in the Taven. Oh. <laughs> Stop that. I'm talking about the luggage. Yes, master. Ladies, this way. It's going to be a long night. If you need any help with the girls, please don't hesitate. Madeline Kahn, such I have a thing for female comedians. Like I, sure. I, I, I can sometimes if I find them even remotely attractive. To me, it's like I'm just all in a thousand percent. And Madeline always had my heart. Like always, I thought she was absolutely beautiful, and she was absolutely very funny. And she knew how to play her sexuality in a way that was. Um, not in a way that was like she didn't use it for benefit. Do you know what I'm saying? For advancement. She uses it because she understands how it plays in the joke. Like it's intelligently used. It, that in, in Young Frankenstein in Blazing Saddles, all these kinds of things. Like when she has, I mean, one of my favorite scenes in the film is near the end when they're ha- when Frankenstein has taken her, the Frankenstein's monster, Peter Boyle, played by Peter Boyle, takes her and they have sex and she says, "Where are you going?" And he, he, he oh, I see five or six, five or six times, and you're off to you're off with the boy. Yeah, we, we so so we can't let this scene go a little bit. Yeah, because this is something it's going to be a theme throughout the show of looking at an older movie. Yeah. and going, hmm, how's that play today? Yeah, because that scene is, and I'm going to say this in the crassest possible way. Okay, that scene is the I'm a stuck up bitch, and what I really need is to get raped by a guy with a really big <laughs> dick. Scene. Well, I don't know if- is rape to the right word? Uh, yes. Okay. No. What are you doing? Stop it. No. And then he is. All right. It is, it is clearly a rape scene. Okay. And I watched it. I watched it with my wife last night. Yes. And I had to turn to her because she was laughing. And I'm like, so it's okay to laugh at this rape scene? And, she's, and my wife was kind of like, it's funny. Yeah. <laughs> 
you know and <laughs> yeah, and right. so it's it's i don't think it was a scene you would do today i think it's it's difficult you know okay. it's like like this is where we're gonna do this all the time yes yes we're yes. gonna go and go like okay that was for that time right i don't think it was disrespectful at that time right madeline khan plays it great she does and and, and she's because i agree with you about her she is phenomenally talented she's got a gorgeous singing voice yes She's beautiful. She's very smart. And one of the great things about her is she has no compunction about being made to look ridiculous. Yes. She will do whatever is necessary for the, for the laugh. Yeah. If you watch her, she's got a great episode in early Saturday Night Live, by the way. Oh. They're really fun to watch. Yeah. Um, I think it's first season. She might okay. First or second season. Okay. Um, uh, and what's interesting is she was going to play Inga. Yes. So she originally is going to play Inga. Terry Garr comes in to, to read for the role that Madeline Kahn does. Yeah. And at the reading, Mel Brooks says, look, actually... Uh, uh, Madeline Kahn is going to play this role. Yeah. Can you come in tomorrow and read for Inga? And Inga is a much bigger role. Yes. So Madeline Kahn decides, I don't want the bigger role. Yeah. I want the smaller role to play this kind of horrible person. Right. Because that's where she thinks she's going to have more fun. And, and she's and you can't, watching the movie, you can't yeah. imagine it any other way. Well, this is interesting you say because to me, it didn't strike me that she was a stuck-up bitch or a horrible person. To me, it struck me that she was with the wrong guy. Which is why sure, she was absolutely. acting that way because she didn't she, love him. She didn't love him, no. and Jean knew she didn't love him. But the, or the character, you know, Victor Frankenstein didn't knew she didn't didn't love him. But you know, he's a guy who's lost in his world. He doesn't know who he is. He's trying to not be his grandfather. By the way, where's his dad? Let's. I would love that to be addressed at some point. It's well, never addressed. It, it, you know. It, well, this is one thing. Like, Skip a generation. We apparently. often criticize a movie because it doesn't make sense. Right. This movie doesn't make sense, <laughs> and course. it's fine. Yes, of course. You know, it's like that. Making sense is good, but it's not necessarily the most important, thing. especially in comedy. <laughs> right. Let, let's talk about Gene Wilder's character because yeah. I think we talked about this in other podcasts. Is Hollywood has a desire to say your main character's got to be likable? Yeah, this guy is not likable. Not anyway. A fairly horrible person. Sure. Uh, from the very first scene where we watch him kick a very frail old guy <laughs> in the balls. And he, and he presents that whole scene is so odd because he presents it as a vaudeville show. Yes. Which is his sort of, you know, and, and the arrogance of him right. and, the, and the, um, the vanity of this guy is so high. Yeah, but they're always undercutting him, right? The, oh, yeah. the medical student asking the questions consistently, who is great, that guy in that scene. Yeah, under the dictionary for, you know, smarmy. It, yeah. It has his picture. Yeah, I mean, he's just, he's poking holes in Gene and I think that's why you cast Gene Wilder because if you're going to create a character like this you need to have some of the audience is going to go with the audience is going to accept not feel that he's a terrible person just feel that he's got this kind of like um, harmless uh, just self-destructive nature to himself and especially when he stabs himself in that yeah. scene that tells you right there he is so out of it he's so lost in trying to figure out who he is that he will stab himself in fury that anyone compares him to his grandfather and that's that's he's just a lost guy and so it's so ironic that the one thing that he is running from is the one thing that he ends up feeling most connected to and, uh, and is able to find who he really is one might say destiny destiny, destiny. no escaping that for me destiny destiny no escaping that for me 
Destiny! Destiny! No escaping us from Which is a really weird scene. <laughs> yeah. um, um, that's why I say he's Daffy Duck. Yeah. He is this point. Daffy Duck is the <laughs> character who is filled with human desire right. and fear and insecurity and anger and outrage and continually makes terrible choices yes. that end up hurting him, and that's why we laugh. Yeah. Um, in uh, Chuck Jones's Chuck Jones, the great famous animator, his biography, which is called Chuckamuck, which is really good and I highly recommend. Mm-hmm. He talks about the fact that uh, that a, that comic villains are much easier to do than a comic hero. That Daffy Duck is a comic villain. Yeah, he's a selfish bastard who's and that's and and that's what gets him into trouble. Right. As opposed to Bugs Bunny, who's a comic hero. Yeah. Um, and that we can't we can relate to Daffy Duck in a way we don't relate to Bugs Bunny. Right. And the same is true with Frankenstein or mm-hmm. Frankenstein. Is that Gene Wilder's character is like yeah. I, I want to be like him too. I yeah. have grandiose ideas about who I am mm-hmm. and then end up being cowardly or greedy or self-obsessed. And that's, I can relate to this guy. Yeah. And even in his pursuit for trying to achieve this life from lifelessness, uh, he, his mania is still so prevalent. Like when he flips out that, that Peter Boyle doesn't come to life immediately is one of my favorite scenes. Oh, yeah. He's like, we have to handle these in science. We learn to handle these things with dignity, a quiet dignity and grace. And as soon as everyone turns around and he flips out and starts yeah. choking this an already dead thing yeah. and then starts pounding on its chest and then screams that he does not want to live. He does not want to live. Nothing. Oh, Doctor, I'm sorry. No, no. Be of good cheer. If science teaches us anything, it teaches us to accept our failures as well as our successes with quiet dignity and grace. Son of a bitch bastard, I'll get you for this! What did you do to me? What did you do to me? Stop it! And the great uh, uh, look to the camera by Marty Feldman with yeah, quiet grace and dignity and you know, that yeah. kind of thing. It's brilliant to me because it's that, that's like us. That's why we relate to him. And I think Chuck Jones makes a great point. We relate to him because that's a majority of us oh, yeah. are pursuing something we want to do with our lives and the frustrations that we constantly have to deal with in order to achieve them are for us off the charts. For another person looking at it from the outside, it might be funny or be like, why is he reacting like right. this? It's because you don't understand because that's my journey and I, it means so much to me. Whereas Bugs Bunny always has the right answer, He's always, always knows exactly what to do. That's like 1% of the population. It's, so it's just why Because so, we want to conceive us, ourselves as the hero of our of own course, story, playing out this grandiose, you know, uh, I'm Harry Potter fighting the bad guys. Yeah, but yeah. it ends up that, no, I'm more like Gene Wilder. <laughs> and the opposite, the opposite scene, which I think it relates to the, uh, the quiet dignity scene, yeah. is... Okay, he the the monster has been we have him in the room yes. and he says, Okay, I'm gonna go in the room and talk to him and whatever I say, don't let me out, which is a classic shtick. Oh my gosh, yes. old classic <laughs> shtick. And to the point where even I'm groaning a little bit. Really? And then oh. they because it's an old shtick, I you guess know. So, yeah. And they go in and they do the first part, let me out, let me out. I was kidding, I was kidding. But then where it goes is he actually conquers that moment. Yeah. It turns to the mom, monster and goes, Hey there. <laughs> and this so bizarre. His performance of I'm a terrified person performing this thing and, tr- and, and, and Peter, and we got to talk about Peter Boyle oh, for a man. moment Peter because Boyle Peter so Boyle great. has to do a pantomime uh, performance for yeah. 90% of the movie yeah. and, and it's very subtle and mm-hmm. small and his looks 
and eye moves and takes to the camera yeah. are so perfect. It's <laughs> to the point where when he actually speaks at the end of the movie, I'm kind of like, oh, really? That's how you talk? <laughs> <laughs> kind of strange New York actor guy. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, yeah, people. He had a life before Everybody Loves Raymond. I just want to make everybody know. Oh, yeah. yeah. He, he's a fantastic actor. He really is. And in this movie, he's the the amount that he gives to just this silent performance is amazing. Yeah. Which, is, which speaks to the knowledge that Mel had about these actors, the, what they were able to do, what he was going to ask them to do, and how they would be able to do it correctly to fit his film. And they do that. And even and Cloris Leachman, too. You can't, you can't not talk about her. So great, so perfect. Her, my favorite moments with her are when the pained expressions when Jean rejects her, yep. the closed eyes, and I'm Wall keeping milk. my dignity. Yes. Like all those, that scene? Yeah. Yes. What is it, you know, Ovaltine? Nothing. Thank you. <laughs> all of that is great her, for her. It's as if he slapped her. Yes, and, yes. And honestly, Gene Wilder's angry voice is so intense. It really is. Because when he says nothing, it is very much like you'll get nothing. You stole fizzy lifting drinks or whatever the scene is from Willy Wonka. (laughs) His angry Willy Wonka, angry Gene Wilder is genuinely scary. It is. It is. It's that nerd rage. I would compare it to nerd rage that you see from people sometimes uh, as as kind of a a non-medical term that you see people like flip out about this one thing and they just want you to understand what they're saying. And so you see that. And but he's so harmless, like he's so physically harmless that it's it works like you don't I don't hate him for it I'm still following his journey he's so comical and it's because everyone else uh, it loves him so much in the film and wants him to achieve what he's trying to achieve that you go along with him right I mean Terry Gar never more beautiful oh yeah than she is in this film and just so great with the comedic time yeah Yeah. everything just charming and funny Mm -hmm. and sweet and holds her own in the moments yeah. yeah and this is you know she actually had worked a lot Yes. Previous to this, including, of course, in uh, Star Trek, the original series episode, <laughs> uh, Operation Earth or something. Sure. Uh, if you say I'm so. I'm a big Star Trek fan. <laughs> uh, so Terry Gar is in that. Yes. But, but, but this is still a big role in a big movie mm-hmm. with powerhouse comedic actors. Yep. And she's, she's right there in it. She really is. And yeah. so relaxed and confident and delivers those lines, the joke lines, so perfectly. And so deadpan, so perfectly yeah. deadpan in certain moments that they're great. I mean, the whole knockers reaction, uh, the roll in the hay stuff, but also uh, when she's trying to encourage him. The candle scene alone, when she's like, put the candle, bick, all those little things. She's it's great. one of the great pieces of physical comedy. Yeah. And she, and, 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 and this is, so this is why comedy is so delicate um, and hard to talk about sometimes, is that she never seems to be trying to be funny. Nope. If you try to be funny, you're going to break it. Yep. She's just playing it very straight. And, and, this, and Mel Brooks says this throughout the commentary track. One of the great things about Gene Wilder is how incredibly serious he is about what he's doing. Oh, yeah. This is all real emotion. This is real serious stuff. Yeah. And how you do that, and it's, there's this weird fine line, whereas you do it one way, and it's serious and real, and it's upsetting. Yeah. And you do it just this slightly different way, and it's really funny. Yeah. And, and that's kind of magical to find. One of the first things they teach you as an actor when you're doing comedy is you have to commit to what you're doing. You have to, you have to believe what you're saying is the right thing. If you start to play it for jokes, you will lose the audience and you will lose yourself in the performance and you won't find the truth. And truth is where the comedy comes from because we never for a minute doubt that he wants to bring this thing to life and he wants to get the notoriety of it and he wants to achieve something that his grandfather couldn't do and in a way 
carry on the legacy in a positive way, which is still his kind of initial point from the beginning of the film, which is why he doesn't have his name pronounced in the same way. He wants to have a positive uh, connotation to his last name. Right. You know, that he has. And this is, you know, again, uh, things that we say about screenwriting that are frequently wrong. Hmm. Like that a character must have a character arc. He must start in one place and end up in another place. Right, 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 right. This guy doesn't have an arc. Not really. I mean, he does make a sacrifice at the end, but basically yeah. his motivation at the beginning is, I don't want to be associated with that name because it makes me look bad. Yeah. And then his whole motivation throughout the whole film is, I want to do this thing because it'll make me look good. Right. You know, and his, and, and so that, now we have to get to what we t- hinted at before. Yes. Putting on the Ritz. Yes. So I think this is one of the most remarkable scenes in any comedy film ever made. Yeah. And, uh, it, it, and if you hear, they had, Mel Brooks and Gene Wilder had a huge fight about it. Yes. Gene Wilder this, wanted this in the movie, and Mel Brooks went, you're crazy, this is stupid, this is awful. Huge fight. Yeah. Until finally, at some point in the fight, Mel Brooks goes, no, I changed my mind, we'll put it in. And yeah. Gene Wilder says, what changed your mind? He said, well, I wasn't sure about it. Mel says this. But I wanted to see how much you'd argue for it. And you've, you're so passionate about it that even though I don't think it's funny, yeah. I don't think it makes sense. Yeah. I, I think we should go do it because I, 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 you argued so passionately for it. Which is, by the way, that's a good director move. Mm-hmm. You know, is that is because we don't as a director, we don't always know what's going to work. Yeah. And so when you see a lot of passion from someone you really respect, you got to go like, I don't know, because it's outside of any. The movie establishes a reality. Mm-hmm. And this is totally outside that reality. To me, it still worked in a, because... Oh, I think it works. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think... Uh, here's the thing, because Gene said... It, or, I mean, uh, uh, Mel didn't want to do it... In the interviews I've read, Mel said he didn't want to do it because he thought it would ruin the rhythm of the movie, what he was trying to make an homage to. Right. And it, no, none of those films had any kind of musical number in the middle no. of it. But to me, it's very reminiscent of King Kong. It's the King Kong moment mm, in Young Frankenstein, because sure. he's bringing out the monster in front of everybody. Oh, of that. And what happens... The, 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 the It's great. It's fun. People are... Just like in King Kong, people are like amazed at this amazing creature that are captured and they feel safe. They're all dressed up in their tuxes at night to go see this show. And it's basically a huge, they're putting a human on for as a monster to be a show, you know? And then when the light breaks, he flips out and just like King Kong, when the chain breaks, he flips out right. and goes after everybody. So to me, it still worked because it's an homage to an, a 40s, 30s type film. So I liked it in the in because it, it works for me in the rhythm of the movie because they're basically going back and making homages I to ne- all the monsters. I films. never thought of the King Kong thing. Really? 100% right. That wow. is exactly the structure of the scene. Yeah. I still think it's completely bizarre. Yes, of course. Because what's bizarre is not... I'm showing off the monster. Right. The, what's bizarre is lights come down, lights come on. He's in a tux. <laughs> yes. And we're going to do, uh, is it Gershwin? Col- Gershwin, I think. Cole Porter. Cole Porter. Oh, yeah. We're we'll doing Porter song. Yeah. We we'll do a Cole Porter song and, and a little tap thing. Yes. And in the whole way, and it's, it's funny because when Gene Wilder presents the scientific experiment at the beginning of the film, yeah. he does it like a magician. Yeah. And when he presents the, the, the monster at the, in, in this scene, he again does it like showbiz. Yeah. Which is really bizarre. And also, I want to point out just something that, again, makes no sense, but is so great. Sure. When he, the, the world that he lives in the United States from the scientific experiment is clearly the 70s. Yes. You have dudes with long hair. Yeah. The, the, the men and women. Yeah, like, the mustaches. We're in the 70s. Yes. And somehow, when he makes it to Transylvania, we're now in the Gilded Age. There's no cars. Everybody's in these costumes and outfits. <laughs> Lederhosen. Yeah. Lederhosen. And, and, and then when we have a presentation like, welcome scientists, that's the dialogue yeah. in the scene, this, 
the scientists <laughs> at this conference are gentlemen and ladies in tuxedos and evening gowns dressed up to the nines yeah. who apparently bring lettuce with them everywhere. Yes, apparently. Like, it's so, it makes no sense at all, but in a great way that's really great in a comedy. Yeah. And, and the thing that I find funniest is what upsets them and what they, why they finally go, boo, you're terrible, is that the monster blows the dance. Yeah. It's not, because they seem convinced that... He did actually, in fact, reanimate dead matter and brought a creature to life, which I think would be pretty impressive. I mean, but when the dance doesn't sell, they're like, oh, kill him. <laughs> I just love the the lettuce moment is so perfect for me. And I'm so glad you brought that up, Steve, because it is, is once again, Mel, kind of in a subtle way, showing that no matter how high we get in society, we're still kind of these primal animals and we're still going to react in stupid ways. And throwing the lettuce is so perfect in that moment because yeah. it's just these these well-established scientists who are throwing lettuce expressing their lettuce. displeasure yeah. I know they're really huge. like they didn't get it's not like butter lettuce or no, anything no. this is like a big leafy romaine <laughs> we're throwing up there um i also and, and and also we've also waited the whole movie to hear the monster speak yeah and and i i cannot tell you how many times my wife and i have turned to each other and started singing putting on the ritz and the other one will go <laughs> put on the ritz <laughs> If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? Different types who wear a day coat, pants with stripes, or cutaway coat, perfect fits. Dressed up like a million dollar trooper. Trying mighty hard to look like Gary Cooper. Come, let's mix where Rockefellers walk with sticks or umbrellas in their midst. <laughs> because that voice that comes out of Peter Boyle's mouth is so crazy yeah. and funny. Which apparently was improvised. Yeah. Mel told him, just say, say it however you think the guy would yeah. say it. And he does it that way. I'm so surprised Gene doesn't break. And maybe there are outtakes I, where I, Gene snaps there in are, half. If you, if you look on the Blu-ray, there are a lot of deleted oh, scenes. Are there really? Oh, there I got to see those. They break a lot. Okay. Um, uh, but can we say one last thing? Of course. When did he have time to teach him to tap dance? And not even, not even like simple tap dance. He was doing the the old school, what do you call that? The pushback or whatever. Uh, whatever it is, the, he was when he was yeah. having his solo moment. There's a term for what it's he was not doing. Flaps. It's called uh, a yeah, 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 something like a pushback or jump back. Tap. Yes, and it's not easy to learn yeah, tap, no. especially as a monster at seven foot tall With and giant, that late pla- in life. Giant platform shoes. It's giant platform shoes. Gene dances really well. Yes, he does. Yeah, um, his, his five, six, seven, eight after the thing is just. Really and then, but he, but he also, and this is what makes the com, what the makes that moment work too. He dials into the scientists. He himself starts yelling at the monster, saying, "Hey, come on, don't make me look like an idiot here." Well, because he's not a good person. Yes, it's all about his ego. It's, it's all so about true. how he looks. It's so true. That's all he actually cares it's about. So true. All right. Yes. Um, uh, all right. So we we skipped a scene that I think is one of the great oh, scenes okay. in all of film, yeah. which is uh, in comes. Gene Hackman. Yeah. Oh, yes. We absolutely have to talk about this scene. Uh, so, again, I hope that you've now watched this movie. Please. If not, at least I bet go on YouTube and watch Gene Hackman and Young Frankenstein. Yes. Because this scene is amazing. Yeah. Uh, Gene Hackman and Gene Wilder knew each other from uh, Bonnie and Clyde. Yes. And they became tennis buddies. And Hackman, oh, wow. yeah, they're playing tennis. And Hackman goes, oh, what are you working on now? And Gene Wilder says, oh, Mel and I are going to do this Frankenstein comedy. And 
Gene Hackman says, man, I'd love to do some comedy. Now, Hackman at this moment's peaking. You know, yeah. After uh, French Connection. Yeah. And he's like suddenly this big, well-known, super yeah. intense, dramatic actor. And, and Wilder and, and Mel Brooks both go, can he be funny? <laughs> like, is he funny? And Hackman goes, no, no, I can, I can do it. And he comes in on the first day. They're really stressed out. Is he going to be good? And of yeah. course... He's brilliant. He is brilliant. And, but it's the perfect, if you're going to do comedy as a guy the way he's built Hackman yeah. is, it works perfectly for Hackman. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Because he's very serious about what he's doing. Mm-hmm. He's, he's very thankful that they that he has, because he's blind. He's this blind guy, which of course is a reference to the scene in, in the, the original, original Frankenstein, film, yeah. Frankenstein. Yeah. So he's this blind guy who's, who welcomes the monster and it's all played for physical comedy. The soup that's poured into the monster's lap, the lighting of the cigar when he lights his thumb, the um, smashing of the wine, you know, breaking the glass, all that stuff is played for great humor. And Hackman is so brilliant in it. And apparently that last line he says at the end when he's like the espresso or I was going to make espresso espresso is improv. Improv. And also, and, and, you know, because I always like to talk about some of the filmmaking aspects. Yes, of course. Is that that a lot of time people think that the laugh comes from the funny thing that happened. And frequently the laugh comes from the reaction shot. Yes. Thing that happened, and Peter Boyle in this scene again with no dialogue, mm-hmm. he is selling these laughs. Like yes. his look, the moment that the the goblet breaks, <laughs> is so funny. Just the sort of oh god, the look into the sky. Yeah, it's you like, gotta be kidding me. Like, come on, <laughs> it's so damn funny. And it's really what's selling the. It's really yeah. what's selling. The well, scene. it humanizes the monster, yeah. right? For all his inability to speak and his like kind of primal movements, he has these very natural human reactions. <laughs> I just was hungry, and you poured <laughs> hot soup on my crotch. Um, yeah. yeah, he's so funny. Yeah. Um, uh, it's interesting. I think this is probably Mel Brooks's most stylish movie by far. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's like you don't think of Mel Brooks as, good, as someone who has interesting visual style. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not that's not what we think of him right. for. And yet, this film, they were really wanted to be true to uh, the James Whale original yeah. and capture that. They insisted. So there was uh, Columbia didn't want them to shoot it in black and white yeah. because movies in black and white don't sell. <sighs> and so he insisted on that, which is why they went over to MGM. Mm-hmm. And um, they get uh, I forget his name i have it in my notes uh of the the great cinematographer hirschfeld i think i'm not seeing it in my notes right now yeah Um, hirschfeld you're right on that and they said okay we want you know that we really want to get into this original james well look and then when they're building sets they're like we got to go build the lab yeah and how where are we going to find the stuff to build the lab well it ends up the guy who built the original lab yeah still alive guy named kenneth tricks Kenneth Strickfadden. Yeah, Strickfadden, yeah. And he still had all the old stuff sitting in his garage in like yeah. Venice Beach. Yep. And they picked up all the weird electric, you know, things with buzzy lights and spinning things. And that's yeah. how they built the set. And they gave him credit on yeah. the film, which he never got on the earlier films. The so that's a, such a great, you know, these are these great moments where you re- people understand people are coming to revere film. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's like the movement that had been building through the 60s and 70s. That's another, just a very small example of how filmmakers were, were starting to understand how much to revere film and the technicians who had created these films that they all fell in love with as kids or growing up through their lives, you know? It's such a great little thing to do for him. Well, and, and Mel Brooks, and listening to him in the commentary track and other interviews I've heard mm-hmm. with him, he really believes in collaborators. He yeah. believes that this is a collaborative process and he gives tons and tons of credit away. Yeah. I, had a, I had a professor when I was in theater school and one thing he told me that I was always stuck with me, he said, a director can never give away enough credit. 
Yeah. Because if the movie's good, the director gets all the credit. And right. If the movie's bad, the director gets all the blame. Yep. And so your job as a director is to acknowledge all the other people mm-hmm. that are going to get lost. And, and Mel Brooks does that throughout. Yeah. He, he talks about the makeup people, the costume people. The, he talks about all the actors, the cinematographers, sound people, music people. He loves all those people and respects their work. And those are the directors we love. Tarantino does the same thing. For all his talking and talking and talking, which we had, what we'd reference when we were doing Reservoir Dogs, he does give credit to everyone else and all the performances and all the actors and the people who help him and the writers and the producers to bring his visions to life. You know, the, and those are the best directors. Those are the ones you really, really love. Scorsese does the same thing. Like he swears by Thelma Schoonmaker all the time. Yeah. And because they, they understand, they understand if you, the good ones really understand what it takes to make it. Film is too hard. Yes. You ca- too complicated. You cannot do everything alone. Mm-hmm. And anyone who believes they can, uh, and any director who thinks, oh, I'm the, I'm the genius creating no. all things, that person is lying to themselves. Yes. That's <laughs> not how it works. No, it's of course just not. way too many variables. And particularly in a comedy. Like one of the things in a comedy is you don't, what's funny on the page might not be funny on the set. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, my understanding is the first cut of this film was like twice as long. Three hours. And they thought it was terrible. Yes. And they had to go through and they had to cut out all the stuff that's not funny. Well, this is funny because this is something you brought up earlier, the five jokes a page. Yeah. They for they said this for every five jokes, they kept one because yeah. they, they, there's so many that didn't work within the scenes of four, four jokes at a time that didn't work within scenes. And then yet these random jokes that don't work for me now, like the walk this way thing that doesn't work for me anymore. It did yeah. when I saw it, but you're watching it, you go, oh, that's so stupid. But... When they were making the film, you understand that it was funny at the time to do it that way, and it works because it's a it's a dumb little joke on both their parts. Right. Do you know what I'm saying? That Gene Wilder's so willing to do it, and then uh, Igor needing to establish a certain level of alpha uh, makes him do it, and then they both understand what's going well, on. Well, and and we know that we're being silly. Yes, you know we the audiences knows that the filmmakers know that they're being silly. Yeah. Well, so you know the interesting trivia about that. No, no, no. So Aerosmith. Is taking a break from recording. What? When and or maybe you're on a concert tour, and they yeah. go to see Young Frankenstein, and that is where the song "Walk This Way" comes. Get out of here! That, according to the internet, <laughs> that is the inspiration for that song. Wow! Is that moment? How funny! I'm so I was debating whether I was going to bring it up, but because you brought up the moment, I was no. like, oh, we've let it in. Yeah. Apparently, that's that's the case. Well, there's so many great physics. This is the thing about this movie, and this is why we wanted to talk about it. And I hope I can speak for you too, Steve. Is like never speak for me. Oh, I apologize. I'll just speak for myself. Uh, one of the, the reason we love this film is all the great bits within them. And they're so earned. They're so perfect. And if you've seen the original source material, you get the joke. But once again, the best comedies that do this kind of stuff, these homages, pay walk that line between respecting the source material and yet finding the inventive ways to make fun of it because you're all in on the joke. You know, absolutely, and, and you, did, you did speak for me. Perfectly. Okay, thank you. Yeah, the the because it's funny. There's sort of two approaches to satire. Yeah, one approach is I think this thing is really stupid, and I need to make fun of it and and break it to pieces to right. show how dumb this thing is. Right. And the other approach is I love this thing. Yeah, and I love it so much, and there's so much that's funny about it that I can make fun of, but it's done out of love. Yeah, and the the the, the perfect example of this for me, and maybe we'll do this movie at some time, is mm-hmm. Galaxy Quest. Oh yeah, which is so good, and it so shows that they understand what's funny about Star Trek, mm-hmm. and they love Star Trek. Yes, because that movie is both 
uh, really, really funny. Yes. And a really good Star Trek movie. Absolutely, it's it is. And, and this one's the same thing. Yeah. Is that they understand why Frankenstein is silly mm-hmm. and ridiculous, and they know how to make fun of it. Yeah. And they clearly love Frankenstein. They didn't have the little girl moment, right? There's no little girl moment from the film, which is in the original, right? right. That we, where he drowns her, and that's the reason the villagers go nuts. So it, they had to find a new way to get him to be, you know, to, to want the villagers to want to burn him and come to the city. And that's what's so uh, uh, fun. Out of nowhere, Madeline Kahn shows up, you know, out of nowhere in the time frame. She shows up, kind of throws a wrench in everything that's going on, and then gets taken by the monster. And so we get to that uh, quote-unquote rape scene that you're talking about that is very funny. Um, and I because I think it's done in a harmless way. Like, I'm not saying, obviously, I'm not saying rape is harmless. It's a very difficult thing. This is a minefield where nav- I'm speaking through right now. But, like, you get the idea that it's 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 done for laughs in a way that's not necessary, not offensive, I think. I, I, think in the, I, I think in the way the movie is made, yeah. the way the characters approach it, right. the way we perceived it at the time, right. it is a funny scene. Yes. And it's only looking at it through today's eyes that I go, huh. Yeah. How would we feel? Would we make this thing today? How would we feel about this scene? And, and it's an interesting word of time in history, which I think is good, where we're, there are a lot of people whose voices have not been heard. Yes. And we're sort of in things that we thought might be funny mm-hmm. in the past. We're going, hmm, maybe we have to examine that and be more yeah. sensitive. And that's really a good thing. Yeah. Um, I'm always nervous. I hate censorship. And so I'm always mm. nervous. And comedy is so powerful in helping us look at human foibles yeah. that I'm always nervous with the idea of like, oh, now we shouldn't do things anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think it's good to examine them. Yeah, and what's a, it's a taming of the shrew moment. And it's it's built up because of how Madeline Kahn is presented throughout the film. Right. right? Very, t- very, very like, in, she's basically kind of a pseudo villain. Not necessarily that she's trying to actively stop Gene Wilder, but his desires for her are so available, so open, so obvious, yet her rejection of him is equally obvious, right. you know? And so when the moments, when the moment happens, it's been built up in a way that makes sense for us. And so when she gives into it, which is real quickly, uh, it's very funny. It's very because funny. Of, her, of the singing is brilliant. It's really funny. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. You bring up Tammy and the Shrew because Tammy and the Shrew is a perfect example of this yeah. as a, as a, very beautifully written classic play of Shakespeare that yeah. is really sexist. Yes. Really, yes. really sexist. Yeah. You know, the story of Taming the Shrew is essentially, here's this woman who needs to shut up and do what her husband says. Right. That's essentially the structure of the play. Right. Um, and that's problematic today. And well, yet we still yeah, do it. We do still do it. Yeah. Because they find the nuances within the language right. that can infer other things. Because he does love her. He does love her. Eventually. Yes, eventually. Not at the beginning. And no, at the beginning it's a dare, it's a challenge, it's for fun. But this, and then, but then eventually he, re, you know, he does love her and he realizes. And so that when she does what she does and acquiesces to him at the end, it's not from that place of control. It's from a different place of understanding that they love each other and they're both in on it. And I think that's what is that's what saves the play. Same thing with Shylock and Merchant of Venice. Right. It's what saves that the, you can do. You can certainly uh, bash the play for how it portrays a Jewish character, but then he has this moment of humanity. The speech is the bashing of the racist points of views about Jews in that moment. You know. We are as human as you, you know, and I think that's that's what so what works within those 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 plays that still makes them relevant and topical today if you do them correctly. I think that's a great great point, and I think what it points out is that is that yes, things that come from a different time are 
are, you know, are go through the filter of the mm-hmm. way that time perceives the world, mm-hmm. but great artists transcend that. Yeah. So that we can, and, and, and I think that applies to Young Frankenstein. Yeah. I think it applies to some of the stuff we said about Reservoir Dogs and Quentin Tarantino, yeah. uh, is that, is that, yes, we can acknowledge that these things, things happen, yeah. but it doesn't sully the movie, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and it's a very small scene. I don't want to make it, it really is. too big a deal about it. Right. Um, uh, how do you? What do you think the influence of this film is? And it's hard to say. I'm not sure that I have an answer for the question. Well, I think it's. I mean, like you mentioned, satire is it, it when it's done really well. I think it inspires a lot of comedians. I think it inspires a lot of filmmakers because it gives you a template to follow. You know, and I think what this film does is lay that out for you. And I think Mel Brooks's career lays that out for you. Spaceballs, you mentioned Galaxy Quest. Spaceballs is an amazing takedown of Star Wars. I mean, I one of the funniest... I tried to watch it recently. I couldn't get through it. Really? Yeah. Oh, Maybe my I should God. Try again. It still works for... That's because you're a Star Trek guy. Uh, you're a Star Trek guy, man. I don't think that's why it is. Yeah. I mean, I, I love Star Wars. <laughs> okay. I love Star Trek more. All right. Um, I don't know. Do you know where Cloud City is? Uh, (laughs) what was it you told me before Bespin yeah Bespin (laughs) Um, but yeah obviously not everybody does it all right I just want to make sure but like those those kinds of things I I think that's what the films I don't know if there's a necessarily a concrete legacy I just think it and Mel Brooks's entire career is a template for doing satire correctly Weird Al Yankovic comes along not that far not that later after this and I would yeah and I would not be surprised if Mel Brooks was an absolute influence on Weird Al Yankovic because he does great satire of these amazing sure. songs and still those songs work separately and i think that's what's so great about uh satire f- film satire that's done well the films stand alone uh you don't have to necessarily have watched the source material to necessarily enjoy the film but it helps it my guess helps. is today way more people have seen young frankenstein than seen probably that'd probably. be my guess they've seen images they, they yeah. know the iconic look of the monster sure. and the iconic look of bride of frankenstein so yeah. on but whether or not they've sat down and watched that movie yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. The thing that occurs to me, and I'm not sure if I can articulate it quite right, is that comedy exists within a certain time, mm-hmm. and that and that the Mel Brooks style of comedy, which is very shticky, yeah, it very much comes out of that Catskill Jewish uh, Yiddish theater uh, tradition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When when time moved on, Mel continued doing the same thing, and it didn't work anymore. Yeah. as well. And and I think Spaceballs is the last one. Yeah. And, and, and watching, I actually think it might be History of the World, which is the one before. <laughs> okay. um, but uh, is, and that if one, someone were to try to do that style of comedy today, it wouldn't work. Well, Galaxy Quest is probably the most recent, and that was like years ago. Well, that's a satire, but I don't know if it has that Jewish shtick Oh, I see element. what you're saying. I'm sorry. I'm saying, yes. Saying okay, that okay. What the, whatever that Mel Brooks yes. style of comedy yes. is, yes. that works at this moment, mm-hmm. you know, and then it doesn't, and, and that it's very fleeting. It's a comedy more than anything else, mm-hmm. you know, you can watch a classic film and really have a lot of ways the same experience someone might have then. Right. But watching a comedy was very loaded, connected to a moment. What know. I would argue, though, Steve, also is that the comedy nowadays is not Jewish influence. I think no. comedy back then was very much Jewish influence. As you mentioned, the cast of your show of shows, that was like a lot oh, yeah, of Jewish those, people were going from the Catskills. Yeah, that's right. It, and it was all great. A lot of the comedy that you see nowadays uses that as a foundation, as a base. But a lot of comedians aren't Jewish, I don't think, and have that Jewish kind of approach. Even though Sandler the Jews, is. The Jews are still there. Yeah, yeah, of course. But it you can't get rid of us. Who's <laughs> trying to? No one's trying to. But I mean, <laughs> the, you don't. You, sir. You know, 
<laughs> you don't feel that Borscht Belt influence no. in the stuff that you see nowadays, even from Sandler, who is Jewish. And sure. it, and it was one of the most prolific, whether you like his films or not, prolific Jewish comedians working today. Oh, yeah. yeah. The um, uh, So I mentioned uh, my teacher, Sam Denoff, this oh, yeah. guy. Uh, so what he said, because I was in film school in the mid-90s, mm-hmm. and what he said, because by the way, if you look at your show shows and the Dick Van Dyke show, which Carl Reiner created, yeah. is that the... Um, the heritage of those shows goes down through all of television yeah. so that the people that worked on those went and worked on Mary Tyler Moore. And from Mary Tyler yeah. Moore, you get all those spinoffs. Yeah. The Norman Lear, also Jewish guy, you get all of those spinoffs and then you get like Charles Burroughs and yeah. you get Taxi, which leads you to Cheers, which leads you to Friends and Seinfeld and all this mm-hmm. stuff. So the, the, there's, a, there's a lineage here. And what Sam said is that in the mid-90s, he said, oh, well, now what's happening is the Jewish comedians, the Jewish comedy writers are being placed, replaced by the gay comedy writers. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and it's right when Will and Grace is happening and Frasier. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I was like, oh, this is a fascinating, a change in the style of humor hmm. has happened hmm. because you know the Jews ran comedy yeah. uh, in Hollywood for a really long time and I, I make no I'm not making a value judgment on any no, no. of this it's just that oh these new voices are coming in and yeah. the style of comedy changes yeah. Um, yeah and Mel Brooks obviously is a very very Jewish sensibility in yeah. terms of humor there's a comfort level in that comedy for me because I grew up with it. Like, I love stumbling upon an old Rhoda episode or a Mary Tyler Moore episode yeah. or, uh, you know, Cheers Still. Oh my God, Cheers Still. To oh. me, I will fight anyone to the death in a cage match about Cheers. It is still the best sitcom ever made, and I will take no, I will take nothing, no arguments against it. I just really won't. I, there's too I much. I, to, I guess I can't say anything. <laughs> just say <laughs> other than you agree. Yeah, no. Yes, sir. <laughs> but this is. But there's a comfort level in that comedy because the comedy is warm. It's playful. It's fun. It can be biting. And we haven't even talked about uh, Kenneth Mars in his portrayal of the of the uh, police chief or the lieutenant or the detective that's there at the time. The wooden armed. Yeah, I think it's. A, I think that's his little dig at authority. I think that portrayal. I think that what Mel does with that, where he's like, he's kind of. Uh, you know, he's kind of a guy who's a little uh, too involved in his in his power, but kind of not that smart. Yet has these weird moments where he is messing with the villagers to rile them up, and then when he gets confronted by a more powerful force, which is the monster who is now switched brains with Gene Wilder, he backs down. You know, and he he doesn't quite go after him, and so it's it's a little bit of a playfulness in that this authority about how authority doesn't necessarily have the is necessarily the smartest people on the planet, and I think that's a little bit of a dig there. Uh, it's no question, and this yeah. is that's that's classic Jewish humor. Yeah, you know, this comes from the shtetl. This comes from <gasps> Eastern European Jewish comedy where Jews were isolated and yeah. how they made fun of the powers that be. It's like right in line with that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I feel like we can't, uh, as we're coming to the end now, okay. we have gone 50-something minutes and have not mentioned Mary Shelley, which I oh, feel yeah. we should mention. Yeah, absolutely. That, is, that Frankenstein is, the one, source, of, source material. is yeah. one of the great archetypal stories. It is, yeah. it is uh, usually cited as the very first science fiction story. And it was created when Mary is and her husband, Percy Shelley, the famous mm-hmm. poet, and Lord Byron are on a camping trip, and they're sitting around a campfire tra- trying to scare each other with stories. Yeah. That's where Frankenstein comes from. And it is a story that has echoes 
throughout history in all you know the idea mm-hmm. of the monster of the mad scientist this all comes from Mary Shelley yeah it's a penny dreadful now that's on TV it, uh, it's on Showtime rather that has it, uh, Frankenstein and Frankenstein's monster in it yeah, yeah it's it's a very uh, powerful story that still works it's it's transcendent like it is generate it's transcendent among generations like it, it it's timeless in its way because it we are constantly always trying to discover if how we can improve life, how we can create life, how we can do life in a different way. And I think that's what it speaks to, you know, the science nature of it, you know, always trying to create these things. Absolutely. So uh, any final thoughts? Uh, yeah. I, other than I recommend seeing the film, uh, absolutely. The filmmaking, look at the little like uh, circles, the little uh, fade into circles that he does through the movie. Like these are all little things that that give you a feeling and a vibe uh, about the old films uh, that he is he is doing a satire of. And I think they're so deftly done uh, that it makes you love the film. The small things and the big things. That's what I would say. Why the film works. Both those things work in the comedy, and they make you enjoy the film so much more. Yeah, and and the thing I'd be really curious about is. Uh, for those of you who haven't watched it, mm. particularly for those listeners who are younger than uh, me and John, sure, uh, I would love to hear if you think this is funny. Yeah. So how does this hold up for people who haven't seen it before? Right. Uh, if you want to reach me, you can reach me at SR Morris. And yeah. what we'd love to hear, by the way, is your suggestions for other shows, movies you'd like us to take a look at. Yeah, we've, we've got a list of our own, but we definitely are open to looking at any... We want to keep this show interactive. So we'd like to hear uh, any films that you all like. And if we get a film that that is consistently mentioned by a number of people, I'm sure it'll make us uh, look at it and, and put it on the schedule. You know, it's and, something we definitely want. And by the way, you might think we totally missed the boat on Young Frankenstein. Yeah. And you could tell us what the hell we got wrong. Yeah, tell us if you hated the film and why. That's cer- We're certainly open to it. You know, it's not like, you know, it's not like we can't have that discussion. And John, where can they reach you? Oh, yeah. Uh, you guys can find me at The Roca Says. That's R-O-C-H-A. You can see all the shows I'm hosting, including Jedi Alliance over on the Popcorn Talk Network and the Top 10 show on the Schmozno on the Collider Schmoes No podcast network as well. All right. So that's it for this week. And we look forward to talking to you again on the Cinephiles. Cinephiles.